Good everyone. I hope you guys have an amazing day. Uh, welcome to another episode of NZ Podcast. As you've noticed, I have changed my podcast from NZ to NZ because this year I will include Australia as well. Um, so today I have with me a very special guest, Gaurav Thakur, uh, who's a solution architect. Uh, Gaurav been working on a Salesforce space for a very long time. Uh, very talented guy. So I bought him uh, today to talk about you know, flows and Apex. So it's a, like a casual discussion. It's not like an interview session or anything. Um, so Gora, welcome to my show. Hey, Vikas, thank you so much for letting me be here. Ah, thank you, man. How was your, how's your break? Yeah, it was good. I didn't do much. I've been, um, yeah, just been uh, taking rest and trying to take, uh, yeah, uh, as easy as possible. That's about it. Oh yeah, that's cool. So, uh, so today, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about Apex and Flow, right? This is uh, normally a very interesting topic for most of the people who who gets into the Salesforce space, right? Because people have different perception. Um, so first, start with the flows, right? Are you a fan of flows? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think so. They have their space. Um, and especially with uh, all the updates that have recently come across on the platform with respect to flow, the new flow designer um, and, uh, you know, more and more capabilities being added to the flow framework. I think it's definitely uh, a really powerful tool. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I have used flows as well and, but the only, only thing with the flows, right. I mean, let me get into that aspect a little bit. Like people say flows are great and I appreciate that, you know, Salesforce done a pretty good job in making a non-developer to work on a, you know, uh, an aspect which you can do by flow. Uh, but that being said, so, you know, uh, you might have also noticed, right, people write flows uh, in a way it gets very clunky and very complicated, right? And then yeah. it becomes very difficult to debug. True. So so I think so that's where uh, what I feel is that people think that flow is a no-code or a low-code framework. Uh, yeah. And that's something that I kind of uh, disagree with. I feel like whenever you're creating a flow, you're still, it is still code. It is just not in the form of the traditional coding language that it does not have the syntax of a different language that you are learning and implementing and, you know, structures that you're creating, but you're yeah. essentially doing the same thinking that you would when you're writing some apex and you're doing the same thinking when you're essentially writing a flow. So Correct. I think you still have to be really careful about what you're looking to do. You still have to have very, you know, a lot of clarity about steps you're looking to perform. What is the order of those steps that it should be? Uh, how can you optimize them if you can? And uh, when do you, um, you know, and I mean, if you kind of just go a little bit deeper into that analogy and actually treat it like code, then you just know uh -huh. that, you know, you, you have an Apex class and you don't want one method which has 500 lines in it uh, because it yeah. just, just becomes too much to deal with. Um, and uh -huh. exactly in the same fashion, if you have a flow that has, uh, you know, a hundred boxes in it, uh, then obviously or a hundred nodes in it, it's going to be impossible to be able to debug and maintain. So I think so that is the first yeah, the, the, the easiest thing to get wrong from my point of view is that the flows that are too big or flows that have too many nodes. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I feel like that just becomes counterproductive to what flows are supposed to do uh, because it's supposed mm -hmm. to be something, you know, really easy and enable you to create 
uh, custom logic that you want. But if you yeah. kind of create, yeah. So so you need to think about subflows. You need to think about kind of breaking your flows down into multiple different flows rather than just having one flow. And then when you start thinking about that, then you have to think about how do you organize your flows and everything else that as you think about uh, when you're writing Apex classes, right? Because once you move from one method to multiple method, then multiple method to multiple classes, then you have to also yeah. have to think about code organization. I mean, similarly, you kind of have to think about the flows as well. Yeah, that's right. I agree with you. I mean, that's one of the the, the, the things which I always felt, right? A, a person coming to the Salesforce space, especially I'm talking from a functional consultant because technical consultants, usually we're programmers, right? So they understand separation of con uh, concept, right? And design patterns. In Flow, unfortunately, there is no design pattern concept. I mean, yeah. people... Uh, I've seen flow, which is like extensively complicated. There is no separate subflows. <laughs> and when you try to debug that flows, right? When you try to add a functionality to that flow, it end up, you know, you, you really get confused, right? Where to add, how to add, and, you know, with the risk of breaking existing change. And and the, another problem I felt, which you might agree as well, the writing a test class from a flow can be challenging at times, right? Yeah. I mean, ideally, you can only write a test class currently for a few kind of flows, right? I think so. You can only write one yeah. for a launch flow. You can't really write one for a screen flow. Um, yeah. Plus, I mean, there is this whole capability now where you can use flow as triggers because you can do like after and before uh, DML triggered flows. Um, yeah. That's just something. I mean, it's, it's good if you want to do, if you have like a small little use case and that's how you want to use them, uh, then yeah. absolutely go for it. But if you are in an org that is constantly changing, that has a huge piece of our program of work that has been, uh, you know, that is expected, then you need to, you know, put yeah. in that early time, come up with some kind of standards, some kind of design patterns that you can apply to uh, how you're writing flows as well. Um, mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, it's yeah. just about, you know, being smart about how you can write it, how you can write it so that, uh, as much components of the flows or you have subflows that are reusable, exactly mm -hmm. the things that you essentially would think about when you're writing code, right? You, you want to make sure it is reusable. You want to make sure there is no duplication. You want to make yeah. sure that it's really easy to debug. You understand what is the input and output parameters of it. Yeah. You want to know, uh, you know, and clearly define that. Um, another mm -hmm. thing I think so it's what I feel is... Uh, it's really easy to get wrong is to uh, not have the differentiation of uh, what is the difference between one and another version of a flow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. You know, because uh, typically what happens is that you are in a rush and you just change it and you don't really define what the version actually contains because you're not adding anything to the description. Um, and yeah. that kind of can really, um, yeah. Like if you think about rollbacks and changes and all stuff, that kind of stuff. So you have like commit mm -hmm. histories for source code, right? But for, for flows, they are not as good. I mean, you can commit them, but you can essentially do the same thing using versions uh, in your org. So why not? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's that's one of the reason why, you know, there are certain tools like static code analysis tools, mm -hmm. uh, which can actually touch the flows are yep. very essential. Um, like for instance, I mean, uh, you know, Clayton is one of the tools, you know, uh, where I've seen that they touches the flows. So, which is pretty cool. Uh, that being said, so, right. I mean, flows are great, but at times, uh, you know, you might encounter a scenario where, you know, you might have to write uh, invocable methods in Apex, 
-hmm. So, and so like what I've found in that case, right? Say for instance, if the number of nodes in flows, right? Let's say if you're writing only four nodes and then you end up in writing most of the stuff in Apex. So then I believe there's no point in going to the flow route, right? You can pretty much do um, everything in Apex instead of, you know, creating just two, three nodes and rest everything is an invocable method. Well, I cannot, it's, it can be useful, but it depends if you're using it as a pattern, right? So let's say, for example, yeah. if you're writing a piece of Apex that uh, kind of uh, is an invocable Apex and it does one common thing, uh, for example, yeah. and that common thing is something that you can apply across multiple objects. For example, let's say you have an invocable Apex that uh, creates a PDF, right? So that's just yeah, yeah. that I've come up with right now. And uh, so what you're going to do is that if you want to have multiple like PDFs generated of different kind of objects, then what you could yeah. do is that you could have a flow that is present for different objects and it has mm -hmm. a few nodes and then it, all of them kind of call the same invocable with different parameters. And that yeah. is something that would be acceptable to me. I don't really think that's a problem, but till you are looking to reuse the invocable and reuse that pattern of how you're using the flow. Yeah, that's that right. Case, that's I right. think it's, it's quite useful, uh, but till yeah. you are, if you're not really thinking through things uh, and you're not intentional about your design choices, then it yeah. can really become uh, a mess real soon, uh, really quickly. Yeah, that's right. And one of the thing, you know, when I first started with the Salesforce, right, I looked at the flow, I said, okay, flows can do the things. But normally, right, when you are someone who has a lot of programming experience, your first inclination is to, okay, I can do that way efficiently in a code than yeah. a flow, right? I think you might have had the similar uh, thought yeah, absolutely. at times. Yep. So I yeah. come from a programming background as well. So I used to do you know, Java, uh, JavaScript and uh, APIs and all that kind of stuff before I started doing Salesforce. So, I mean, yeah, that yeah. was my first thinking as well. It has been, it has taken me quite a while to kind of slowly move away from that and actually kind of see how flows have the advantages they do, uh, specifically mm -hmm. around if you want to create some UIs, right? I think so they can, they can yeah. enable you to do that really quickly. And if you're trying to do something with, let's say you want to prototype something and see how the whole functionality looks before you go into the details of how exact, uh, you know, or how pixel perfect you want your UI to be. I think the flows are yeah. something, you know, like an amazing tool to do something like that. And then you can have something yeah. up and running. You can, you know, assess what the usage of that particular uh, functionality is like, and then you can go back and see, okay, now this is, these are the parts that I need to improve. Uh, this is where I'm actually facing uh, performance issues, it is slow or whatever other kinds of issues, right? So it enables you to get to a place where you know this is a function that your users want. Uh, and then you just want to focus on how do you make it better rather than you know trying to over-optimize from the get-go, I think. So that's something we should all avoid. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I agree with that because I, you know, I've seen a couple of uh, you know orgs where they have, you know, some, some of the orgs are pro code and some of the orgs, what I've seen are completely anti-code, right? Mm -hmm. Where they say everything has to be done using declarative mm -hmm. and some places, you know, oh no, we can't trust some flows because flows are clunky, still not up to the, you know, the standard, what they expect. So I think, you know, you know, you know what I believe should be case by case, right? I mean, yep. uh, it has to be based on the, the, the problem you're trying to solve. Uh, that being said, so, right, I mean, I remember I had a, a conversation with one of the uh, functional consultant a long time back. I mean, um, 
we did a podcast together and he agreed that it doesn't matter you're a functional technical consultant uh, once you get into flow right you have to have a basic understanding of programming you know just to know how the loop works you know the four mm-hmm. loops works or if if else condition works right without mm-hmm. that you know you just end up in writing a you know garbage flows which makes which end up causing a lot of problems in the future exactly and you know just to be able to know like you know like we spoke about how it is exactly like writing uh, code and uh, you know you want to know how are you structuring your flows are you thinking about subflows are you thinking about what are your input and output parameters do you have a clear uh, intention of a particular flow in your mind like do you know what exactly is this particular flow supposed to do or uh, and are you actually separating uh, the flows by functionality or what you're doing is that you are actually just adding functions onto a single flow that you created which is something very yeah. similar to you know people writing triggers for the first time and they just keep adding more and more and more and more logic into that same trigger uh, till it reaches a stage yeah. where you know you just don't really know what the trigger is doing anymore um yeah that's right i've seen that one yeah. a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's one of the challenges with the code as well right i mean you know coming to the apex all right i mean people normally assume right i mean someone say you know who wants to be a programmer gets into apex which i personally believe you know apex is should not be used as a first programming language to learn the reason why i'm saying i mean you can disagree that mm-hmm. i haven't seen a very good structurally you know object oriented uh, designed apex code yet because most mm-hmm. of the times i've been Apex is treated like a procedure language. You know, you write it, you know, yeah, they use classes, but I haven't seen getting virtual methods getting used, abstract classes getting used much, you know, interfaces getting used. You know, I've used interfaces. And this is, this these kind of things, actually, I believe, you know, uh, freaks people off and they look at it, oh, it's too complicated. Let's get into the flow route. Yeah. So I have seen that uh, behavior a bit, you know, when uh, even a programmer, you know, who's wanted to start first time in the Salesforce, they think, oh, flows are easy, right? Because after all, it's a drag and drop. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that mindset, I believe, is what causing a lot of tech debt in the network, right? Yep, no, no, absolutely agree. And uh, just a point around, uh, uh, you know, Apex is, so, I mean, it is, it is kind of a, it's very balanced. I feel like Salesforce has done a really good job with Apex. I mean, there are, don't, don't I mean, don't, uh, Definitely, there are times when I'm pulling my hair out and thinking that, oh, I can do that in Java or JavaScript. Why can't I do that in Apex? But when then I try to kind of understand the scale at which it is working and the kind of limitations it is working in, I feel like they've done a wonderful job with Apex uh, because you can make it as object-oriented as you want to make it. So, you know, it's definitely possible to use it like that. But do you always need to is another concern, right? So it's good to understand and know object-oriented programming, but also know when do you actually need to get into it. So until unless you you have actually really complicated use cases or a lot of customizations that you have to build, you can actually use it just as a procedural language. Uh, And there's nothing bad on that uh, because I think that's the biggest learning I've had working on the platform is that you need to use the right tool for the job rather than just yeah, right. apply the same tool to, you know, uh, you can't use a cookie cutter approach, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, the what I was saying from the perspective, right, you know, uh, not from a simple perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Say a, a project, you know, which has been built, right? And let's say any API integration, just for the sake of argument, let's say we are integrating with 
say one interface mm-hmm. and one third party. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of methods that is commonly used, right? Uh, so if the reason why I wanted to mention that, you know, instead of when someone else wants to, you know, interface with another, uh, say, uh, vendor, right? And most of the HTTP calls to get post and it's pretty much the same, for instance, let's say for the sake of argument, right? So I have seen a code where people duplicating it. So that's yeah. one of the approach I was saying, uh, you know, which I find it a bit frustrating at times because the more you duplicate the code, uh, the more it's difficult for you to fix, right? Because then you have to remember fixing in five different places exactly. instead of fixing at one place. Yep. So that's one of the approach I was talking uh, from an object-oriented perspective because I came from a uh, .NET background and I, and, and plus, you know, one of the things, you know, I've seen most of the C-sharp code, I don't say every code, but most of the codes are very well-structured mm-hmm. in, in an object-oriented pattern. And Apex is pretty simple. I mean, to be honest, from a library perspective, it doesn't, it's not bulky. It does not have too much of, like, for instance, if you take collections, it only have set lists and maps, right? You don't have, like in, uh, I mean, maps, even Java you have, but you don't have the complex like the hash map and other kind of stuff, right? Like we have in other languages. So yep. in that perspective, yes, I do agree. Salesforce done a pretty good job and uh, Apex is pretty stable, but the only concern I raised, right, right? When you have a complex requirement and the developers started making, using it as a procedure language and someone else comes on board um, and then they say, oh yeah, the, the guy has done the similar, let me copy paste the code. That's where the tech depth started to build, right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. But I mean, I mean, and and if you really think about it, duplication is just one of the issues that you would essentially see. Yeah, 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 just yeah, one of the smell yeah. that actually you would actually see encapsulation being violated everywhere. You would actually see no strict boundaries in Apex Core as well. Um, yeah. And I think so. It, a little bit of it is kind of uh, from um, where you kind of see a lot of Apex developers or technical consultants coming through from a functional background as well. And I mean, I know quite a lot of folks in the industry who kind of have uh, started just writing code or becoming technical on their own, which I feel is like a, a, a big, big feat because I didn't think so I would ever be able to do that just to you yeah. know, pass that bridge from functional to technical is really hard. And to do that mm-hmm. on your own is even harder. So I think so Salesforce is now providing the right resources. I think so for Trailhead and there are, a lot of documentation around uh, enterprise Apex patterns and things like that, which kind of makes it possible for someone who is doing self-learning and kind of is on that journey to learn those things as well. But it's like, you know, if I, if I really be honest, if I'm being honest about myself as well, uh, when I started writing Java, I didn't really know any of the design patterns, right? It took me some time to kind of understand. Plus I had seniors around me who kind of, guided me and were there at the right point in time to ask the right questions, which made me think and understand that, yeah, okay, maybe this is not the right way, or this is the pattern that actually I can apply here. So it is the same thing kind of process needs to happen in Apex as well. It's just that I think, so we have a lot of developers who have not spent huge amounts of time and they don't always have uh, a lot of leadership around them uh, in terms of being able to guide them. And, and I think yeah, so yeah. that is slowly changing as well because people are realizing that this needs to be a bigger, more holistic program of work rather than just a couple of consultants, uh, you know, trying to get something done. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I agree. I mean, like, you know, it's 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 interesting you mentioned that I've only started as a Java developer. I started as a C developer, <laughs> and C is not an object-oriented programming language, right? It's mostly yeah. used for, you know, I used to code my first task was to code for, you know, microprocessor, mm-hmm. and it was a complex language, right? And there is no, I've I didn't use any design pattern. I wrote it exactly like a procedure language, you know, you know, fifty lines of code. It does the job, you know, forgotten about it. The actual transition really happened, uh, you know, when I started to move to C++, right? And mm-hmm. I used to write very bad crap code, I would say, you know, mm-hmm. for a few years till someone pointed to me that that code, it smells so bad <laughs> that, you know, it's a, it's a way of saying, right? And that, you know, it will make the entire system crumble the way yeah. you write code. So that made me realize, right, it's just the garbage I, I've been producing. So that. You know, that realization, right? A developer has to come with a self-realization, right? And you're right. People need to have a mentor around them who can guide them, right? If someone, like, it, that's what the code uh, code review is very important, in my opinion. Someone yeah. very senior doing the code review and say, hey, this approach is not really great. Can you try it this way to see, right? So, yeah. So, and that's, and that's one of the reason why I think that, you know, I coined a term, right, called flow smell. That's I've been noticing a lot in flow smell as well, uh, like concept of flow smell where flows get extremely complicated, and then you know developer just gave up looking at the flows. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. actually a good term. I think so. We we probably need to create a list because it would be great if you could just you know create a list somewhere of these are all the flow smells that you have noticed, and then you know a lot of people would be able to would be really happy if they can look back and refer to it. Like from my point of view, I think so. If there is anything that has more than thirty nodes, um, yeah, 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 that's it. That's a stretch. So and thirty is like the max. Um, yeah, you probably want to be between fifteen to twenty nodes, and that's it. Yeah. If you're trying to do anything more complex than that, uh, you really need to step back and question yourself: Are you doing it the right way? Um, and I mean, there are multiple ways to solve that same problem, right? Maybe you need to go to Apex. Maybe you need to actually have a different processing object where you can externalize your logic into. And uh, yeah, so multiple ways you could possibly solve it. But yes, it, what is important is that you kind of step back and and see that what you're trying to do and what is the impact it's going to have on the world. Yeah, that's right. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. That's, you know, I, <clears throat> I've been lazy in writing blogs, to be honest. I'm not really a guy to write a blog. I, I can make a video about explaining the stuff that's more easier for me, mm-hmm. but yeah. You know, based on experience, like, you know, you know, you, you both work <clears throat> on, a, you know, some of the similar stuff and you, you notice, right, how messy the flow has been. And and then, you know, it's frustrated, <laughs> you know, you and I both. So, yeah, <clears throat> the same thing happened to me on Apex as well, right? Some of the codes, I looked at it and I like, man, who can write this kind of code, right? No error logging, no try catch at times, right? <clears throat> and it's get, everything is getting logged. Uh, somewhere else and sometimes there's no logging whatsoever so uh, so I think having a standardized process right could be a good way to start I mean don't have to be you know extremely rigid with the process right but you know flexible process where everyone can follow and then you know come to a you know a, a bit of understanding right this is the way you know to move forward yep true that's right I agree <clears throat> Yeah, I think so, especially with, you know, more and more of this is going to, you know, become natural and people are going to get better at it. I think yeah. so there is a lot more, uh, you know, developer friendly tools that Salesforce has kind of come up with, uh, for example, Salesforce yeah. EX, and now with second generation packaging mm-hmm. as well. 
I feel like when yeah. you can focus on a smaller set of code or smaller set of functionality, then you mm-hmm. can have a lot more focus on the quality of it. And then you just yes. have to think about how it all kind of fits together. So you're kind of working on that, a single block rather than always thinking about all the blocks together. And then yeah. that kind of makes it really easy for you to kind of hold it in your head. Uh, there is another, there is a term for it as well in that book, Team Topologies, which I'm forgetting right now. Um, right. Yeah, but essentially, that essentially is what decides how good a team is basically, or how good your code quality is or whatever your delivery yeah. you are doing is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. That's right. That's right. I agree with you on that. Yeah. And another thing I believe that, you know, whenever you write an Apex, right, the test classes should be good, right? People should mm-hmm. write positive and negative tests, right? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I had a habit, right, initially that I used to write only positive tests and say, oh, it hit the code coverage, right? Why yeah. should I bother? But I was so wrong. <laughs> so I have to write positive tests and negative tests to make sure, right, you know, it fails and what happens if, you know, succeeds. So, you know, that's that kind of mindset. It's like, a, you know, I believe, you know, people should start having a test-driven development approach. You know, start from a test point of view first to see what all things you I mean, that's just my personal opinion, though, um, that, you know, you should write from a test perspective to say, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? And then based on that, you, you start building your code. And it depends on what kind of, uh, you know, what should I say? What kind of reliability you are expecting out of your build process yeah. and on, and your tests, right? So I am somebody who's really very, very risk averse. So I essentially yeah. want to make sure that there are unit tests available for any kind of change that I've done. So if there is yeah. anything that I can unit test, I will make sure that I, you know, write a unit test for it, or I will ask my team to make sure that there is a, there is a unit test that is written for it. I mean, I would mm-hmm. even go so far as making sure that you even have unit tests for the process builders that you would write uh, and even for validation rules, because you want to make sure that 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 is all part of code, right? Because it is all yeah. changes that you have made onto your org. And yeah. during your build process, you actually want to understand if your org has shifted away from what was the expected state. And that is right, all the right. tests are allowing us to do, right? Because if it is moved away, even so let's say even if you think about a validation rule that just has a message that has changed from what it was before to what it is now. But if it yeah. is on a customer-facing community page, you want to know about it because you want to make sure that you have it in your release notes and actually mm-hmm. have told customer that, okay, yes, that this was the error message that you were going to receive before, but now that language has changed to this so that the customer is aware that, yep, this is an intentional change and this is why it has changed rather than just making it happen. Yeah, that's right. I agree with you on that. Uh, totally agree. And I appreciate that. You mentioned that because it's, I mean, it's good to be, uh, you know, pessimistic when it comes to <laughs> the code, I believe, because, you know, the advantage of being that, I mean, it's some people say, oh, you're too pessimistic, but you look from a long run, right? It helps business saves a lot of money, right? Because if, if something goes into production, Mm-hmm. Fixing a stuff in a production gets more messy than fixing in a sandbox. Exactly. Right? Yes. yes. And that's and what it costs. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, no, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say exactly that, you know, I mean, the, the more you can test to the left, the easier and the cheaper it is to test. And uh, if you have Apex tests that are actually enabling you to verify all the logic that you have actually built into the org, then yeah. there's nothing like it because it is these are tests that you can run really quickly if you write them right again. 
if you write them mm-hmm. right, you can run them really quickly. Otherwise, they can take heaps of time to run. Um, so you need to make yeah. sure that you're smart with your unit tests. Uh, but it is also gives you, you know, heaps of peace of mind to kind of just be able to say that if these tests pass, I am sure that production functionality is not going to be impacted or it is going to be impacted in the fashion as it was intended. And I think so that peace of mind is, yeah, yeah it, it, it's, yeah, I don't think so you, anyone can put a price on it, especially for me, no one can put a price on it. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, it's just gonna because you know my biggest concern is right. You you release a code of flow right, and you, you realize it's an issue on the production, and it started impacting the data. Mm-hmm. And now that something is very very can get very messy unless the a company has a backup solution, right? But yep. unfortunately, you and I know right. Most companies do not have backup solution. They think Salesforce is safe, but. You know, most of them don't realize, you know, if the data can get corrupted in production because of a messy Apex code or or flow doing something which, you know, supposed not supposed to do. Exactly. Yep. So, yeah, I agree that the test classes makes a lot of difference. So, yeah, that's 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 interesting. I mean, that's pretty much I wanted to talk about because I thought it, it, we can do a quick, you know, a catch up and like a podcast talking about flows and Apex. So it's been interesting. So. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Gaurav. It's all good, Vikas. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, yeah, you have a lot of knowledge. So, you know, discussing these things, that kind of uh, gives me your perspective and helps me understand things better. So yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Cool. Thank you very much, Ren. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank yep. you. Bye.